Hello, my name is Tim McLaughlin, and this is a Maywa podcast. In this episode, we present the fourth and final part of The Working Traveler, a panel discussion that took place on Wednesday, October 21st, 2009, in the Maywa loft. The question is whether with the disappearance oh, yeah. of oil... Well, that's really interesting. I'm, yes, and I like that what she's saying. Because, would, because it's going up in price, but now it's going down in price. Yeah, and as it becomes more and more extinct and harder to get... But as oil was going up, it was interesting that the price of synthetic fibers, even in the villages, was going up. And they were like, oh, my goodness, look at this. This, this Thai soap that we have is getting a rather expensive price. <laughs> And it's like synthetic dyes, too. We, I began to think, oh, maybe it's going to be actually cheaper to dye with natural dyes instead of more expensive because synthetic dyes are petrochemical-based. And, and, but then now it's gone all back down again. So. But there is a foreseeable cap on this, like maybe not within our lifetime, yeah. but within yeah. the next lifetime. And hence, finite should not these things maintain? That's why it's important. I don't know yeah. it's like a time capsule or something. But I have another question, <laughs> which is, in your travels in the villages and the use of dye, which requires water, do you see a drastic reduction in the, in the availability of water, or is there, are you seeing a real change in how they use it because it's, the supply of water is being diminished? Bat, yeah, bat, bat, uh, wrong dyeing for the wrong place, growing cotton in a, in a desert that's a fairly uh, water-needy plant. Losing all the diversification of seeds, say, uh, and, and, and animals and, and dye methods that use less water, uh, this is a problem because most of the what's remaining, most of what's remaining is uh, industrial um, processes who could really care less. They have first access to all water in all regions, first access to and, and availability to dump and those are the processes that are rem- remaining, and this is why all the diversify, diversity of what exactly what we're all talking about, why the value, what the value is in that, um, but how quickly it disappears, as Sheila said, and our experience is not even a generation, and, it, and the process is gone. And Michelle Garcia, who was talking, of, you know, is this extraordinary man, who understands the chemistry and so forth. He has so many, so much knowledge about dying with less water, dying with better plants, dying with extracting, having higher extraction from dyes, growing, you know, he has such a knowledge of the botany of knowing what seeds of cotton to plant or what seeds of dyes to plant and so forth. So it's been extremely, um, kind of hardly can have touched the ground with, with all the conversations we've had with him of what we what could be improved in methods that we are trying to um, maintain. I'd like to open up, getting ready to close, with one final question for each of the people on the panel, and this is, a, I hope, a sympathetic question for the audience. If you could recommend one journey to the audience here, what would it be and why? <laughs> You've had it soft over there. We yeah, I think uh, the journey um, 
the first uh, i mean after this long passion of trying to get into textiles that my uh, i mean i uh, really hard resistance from my family as to not to go out and stay in the family business and all that uh then having a horrible experience in delhi as to trying to get into uh, textile courses and jobs which would i mean kind of offer me an experience in textile finally when i walked into fulia into the village and uh, first i mean when i really lay my hands on the loom and i realized that this, it's it was weaves that i really wanted to take up and because of the possibilities of all the of the loom which offered me immediately as to the textures and the fabrics that i wanted to create i think that journey is what uh, would be the best in my mind i would never never forget that and um yeah was that the best because it was at a pivotal moment in your life or was it best because the area was extremely it was both i guess it complemented each other i was in this time when i was actually trying to trying i mean i actually was seeing my dream coming true slowly and then also being in that area which i mean provided me opportunity to work with one of the best of the skilled weavers all over india would like to go next <laughs> linda oh. <laughs> <laughs> if you could recommend one journey either that, that because it has significant uh, impact for you or because you think it, it would be very valuable for them what would it be and why um i i have to say that of the 27 countries or however many i've been in um india for me has provided me from an aesthetic level uh and and for it, my travels in india have been uh, uh almost exclusively up in the high himalayas and um to be able to spend a short amount of time you know no more than a week or so um at 16000 feet and um and, and remember my frame of reference uh sleeping sleeping under a military parachute which i don't necessarily recommend you do that but to have 12000 goats literally right right outside my tent um and to be uh part of a nomadic community a truly nomadic lifestyle is about as far from the western world idea of tourism as as you're going to get um that will not only to to have the experience of the beauty of the himalayas but i think to sample what life in many ways still retains its its true identity um you know that you do see cars parked you know next to yurts i mean that that is that is inevitable um and and also to be able to um be part of the the people there have just been and I, and the people are always because people are extraordinary um but but this particular group has really resonated with me that's so up up book your ticket to the dock this <laughs> 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 where it's been great thank you steven well i've um 
had the rare privilege of traveling more extensively within India than almost any other human being. And um, I am frequently asked what my favorite area is, and I have no way of answering that. None. Because they're just different things in different areas. But what I would say is that if you... And, and my experience is in the, I, you know, I thought Morocco actually, you know, because I love Morocco too, or, or Afghanistan bef before the wars, it was just a fabulous, fabulous country. But, but in India, since I know it so well, what I would recommend is that if at all possible, you go and allow yourself the freedom to be away from a group that you're traveling with, or go on your own anywhere anywhere in the subcontinent and allow yourself the great privilege of being invited into homes mm -hmm. and you will be wherever you go and that experience of being in homes by yourself it, it has a value which can never be expressed sure that's Exactly the question. <laughs> it it's was, not on there, actually. No, it's uh, <laughs> the best. If no, you if you could recommend it, one journey, what, so what would it be and why? Either for yourself, as the journey that you, you think was the best, or as a journey. I that love you my life. I love the journey I'm on. Um, every journey, every. You know what I think the best journey is? <laughs> From here to the airport. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> Going, okay, there's nothing I can more I can do. Oh, that's so true. Yeah, that's true. I'm in the plane and I'm starting a journey again, uh, so fresh. Every journey, I never know how every. I, it's kind of the same as, uh, although I take care of all the details, like, like uh, Sheila, I, I don't actually plan, I, I let the trip take me. I don't, I, you know, I take care of all the details as far as you know, my passport and I don't lose my camera, da 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 da. But actually, we, we start out on those journeys not exactly knowing what's gonna, going to be, or not at all knowing what the outcome is going to be. But that, that setting off, that, I, I, that gives me, I can never eat the day I leave. <laughs> and I fall asleep as soon as I get on the plane. And um, yeah, I think every journey. I can't pick one, but I do love that um, process in my own personal head as far as my journey when I'm here every day and wake up. And I do love heading out. Starting out a journey. Sheila. I find this very difficult to answer. There's got to be all kinds of provisos, really. I think... Um, I love Pakistan. I would think to go from the south to where up in the north, just one on your own, and not or maybe two. Two is completely different. One, you've got to be on your own. But of course, you might now get murdered by um, the. What are they now? They're not the Taliban now. They're the. They're the uh, Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda, yes. Sorry. Which might not be as good an experience. No. Um, yeah. I mean, they've been fighting forever up there. Uh, I think just starting from home and coming back home is always a good good thing. It's, I just can't answer this. I've been scratching around thinking, well, where did I particularly love being? But there were so many places, and also they changed so quickly and so rapidly that it might have been wonderful five years ago, but now it isn't anymore for some reason, usually political or um, 
economical. Can't answer that, really. Okay, well, that concludes my formal part as moderator. Now we have the last part of the day, which is a question and answer, and now it's all up to you, because I've asked all the questions on the <laughs> sheet of paper, and once you're done asking questions, the day is over. So, questions from the audience. Yes. We quite regularly hear the phrase a global citizen. President Obama uses it often, John Brown uses it, and we hear it always. And I would argue that you, and pretty much everybody in this room, represents a very, very different ideal of a global citizen compared to what the general population is about. And I want to just hear your sort of thoughts on what it's like to be a global citizen. I think it's a nonsense as a term, really. <laughs> we all belong somewhere. I think it's essential to belong somewhere and to have a, a country, if not a town, if not a village that we call home, a family that we call home. It's part of our makeup that we need. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how to word this, but um, being a craftsperson, a weaver myself, and I, I, I value tradition, and I think it's so important what people are doing to try and maintain tradition, but I always think it's so important that the stamp of the person comes out. And probably more for some people than for others. Some craftspeople have to put their heart into it, and others who are happy sort of following the tradition. The uh, thing that struck me was when we had the Chinese exhibit here, and they had the reversible, two-sided, double-sided embroidery. And I just, I often think of that image and I find it very, very sad because I think of the hours of somebody's life that was spent perfecting that, that thing that it, we can marvel at, but I just always wanted to talk to them. What was sad? Yeah. I'm sorry, because I didn't that see it. There's so many hours of their life were spent because it's such a difficult thing to do. And they, it was a pre-prescribed, uh, double-sided, yeah. so they had to follow, you know, they didn't, at least the way I see it. So I guess I just would be interested to hear how you feel, um, where the personal input comes in and where the soul and how, uh, when you're uh, honoring tradition, where can people deviate? You were talking about it a little bit earlier on, but um, I'd just like to hear more about so that. So can we just um, make sure we understand the embroidery? It's a double-sided embroidery that they're not allowed so to show? Is no, no, on the one side it's, say, an elephant and our, uh, a panda, and the other side it's uh, something totally different. It's quite amazing. But I, I just use it as an example of, I can't imagine, they talk about it taking, you know, 10 years or whatever, eight hours a day for them to learn it. So I'm just using that as an extreme. Okay. That person has had to focus on this, and we can marvel at it, but where is the... You mean there's just no personal expression, really? Yeah. Is that for, what you mean by that? Yeah, so and it's such a waste of time. For the, yeah, for, to me, yeah. it's a waste of time. Waste of life. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some value in it, but but mm. from from the uh, maker's point of view and what it uh, the message it gives to the world and what it shares, I don't. I don't see it. Yeah, where's the soul? Yeah, yeah, uh, I mean, sometimes there are crafts women or men who have taken pride in doing such things, yes. to be able to do that thing, and they've been considered quite special in their community. They've earned certain uh, respect. I mean, say, for instance, the Ajak, uh, where they, I mean, actually, you used to have two different kinds of prints on both the sides, and there were very, very few people who could do that. And although it was time time consuming, they, they still took a lot of pride in it because those were the few people who knew the skill and the skills were heavily guarded because of that, uh, because they, I mean, wanted to be in that limelight. So.
so mm -hmm. sometimes it was a choice from the, their side. Stop me if I'm wrong, but are you suggesting that maybe this form of craft is like just too extreme, like making a scale model of the Empire State Building out of toothpicks? Like it's it's just yeah. too... No, or just the tradition. Yeah, just, just maintain the tradition where you draw the line. What, at what cost? And, 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 what and, and, and for the end, like it, I find it an interesting office saying, people get the satisfaction, so that's great, and just sort of, okay. Because the alternative, sorry, go ahead. No, you finish what you're saying. It's going to be long. <laughs> Might have been longer. <laughs> the alternative is that craft. What what has what has happened? I think in in the last twenty years is that craft became so traded that uh, that that the main uh, push of craft was to feed a tourist economy or to uh, tourist a tourist and create an economy that way, and that the um, position of craft became very, very low so that the craftsperson in the village became very, very, uh, almost a menial task. Mm -hmm. And as craft, there has been revivals in craft, and as the, uh, there are opportunities for master craftspeople to actually find patrons again, um, that they they do get, they do come up in within the, every village is not just the same as us. Some people just want to make money. You know, they just want to embroider something that takes a day and get paid daily wages, as do some of us, and or different parts of our life ha that happens. But there's always those people in the, in the village, and what makes a healthy village is when there can be that creative expression on all levels, and that there can be the person that's very innovative and is doing all kinds of, he's just, we don't even understand what he's doing with, with, you know, his block printing now, he's block printing the scenes and he's blocking the oceans, we don't even have an ocean here, I mean, this is going on. And then there's the other one that's recognized for the double-sided Ajrak, you know, say Jabbarbai, for instance, in one of those we work in, and he really, that's all he wanted to do was re-perfect that. That's his personality. He says, if I have to do a bandana, I don't want to do bandanas anymore. I just want to do this is a small square that I want to do double size. So there's, it feeds all those, um, and there has to be, you know, markets for all of that so that there um, or reasons for all of that. Some, some just still do only the temple claws, or the claws that are given to the temple, I should say. Um, so I think it's a healthy village that has all those layers in it. Yeah, we told you. We went over time. No, I... I, I want to make sure I underst I'm understanding this question, and if I'm not, then I want to still say what I'm going to say. Questions are important. Well, no, because I think part of what I was hearing is, you know, is here is this person who has done this incredibly talented craft with perhaps not the right level of recognition and or satisfaction attached to it. No, the recognition is there. I think everyone's going, rah, 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 aren't you amazing? But... Are they, you know, beside, I mean, Bapa's showing, yes, that's enough for some people, and Charlotte's saying the same thing, so I guess for some people that's enough, but but uh, for, is are there some people that are trapped, because that's their only opportunity mm -hmm. to do exactly traditional things, um, and they have a spirit in them that they would like to release a little bit more. And or innovate. Innovate, exactly, yes. Okay. And I think this, this boils down to a, a, a much simpler question, and yet a much bigger question and something that we as humans are all charged with, which is 
at what point do we ascribe a certain value to something coming from our own framework? You know, we think, oh my God, 10 years of doing this incredibly tedious is just incomprehensible. And perhaps similarly, so much of what we do as Westerners is equally incomprehensible as well. And one of the things in being a working traveler is to help expand my mindset, you know, and to, to create that level of understanding, I think that um, there is just wonderful value in the, the various forms of expression. Um, you know, sometimes obviously without having that, that commercial thing attached to it, but also the idea that there are times when I think, oh my gosh, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a craft where you could just be you know, totally enmeshed in it and not have to be worried about um, uh, the commodity of it. I, I just, I, I sense, and, and I could be completely wrong, and please understand why I'm saying that, um, I think it's so hard for us from our perspective to always uh, identify where the value is to the individual. Mm -hmm. And I think you, and I think you really did answer that. In your, in your response. Did you, did you want to comment on that? No. <laughs> it's a glass of water. I have a question. <laughs> I think I've said enough, really. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, we've got two more questions. Let's take the one from Lisa, and then we'll move back to the front. Yeah. Um, I just have one question. I'm curious. I go on these trips and everything, and then I come home and I have to pay the bills. I guess I was just curious how people have sort of supported themselves financially. That's a very good question. Um... How I support myself financially. To go to travel. Well, first I travel as cheaply as I possibly can, uh, which means that I think my carbon footprint is fairly low. I haven't got a car, mostly because I crashed it. So, um, <laughs> so that, that was rather forced on me. Um, I blacked out at the wheel and nobody understands why, so I can't drive which is a nuisance living in a village with one bus an hour and none in the evenings and none on Sundays. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so my carbon footprint is fairly low. And when I travel, I fly, obviously, long distances. But after that, I always travel on public buses. I never hire taxis. Or so I think my carbon footprint is fairly low, apart from the textile tours I used to take. Because then I take 12 people, and obviously we fly, and we have our own bus and that sort of thing which must be much more damaging. But on the other hand, those 12 people contribute quite a lot to the countries they go to. Uh, we try to stay in hotels that are locally run, that the money goes to local um, shops and dealers, and we employ local people as guides and, and uh, drivers and, and that sort of thing. So... Um, I don't feel too guilty about that aspect. And as for finance, I'm in a strange position, really. Um, because my husband was killed in an air crash, I was awarded some compensation. So once the kids had gone and I looked after them, I had a bit of income. I worked. I worked as a, a conference interpreter and, and afterwards as a teacher, conference interpreter when the kids, before I had the kids, and afterwards as a... Um, a professor at Oxford Polytechnic in languages, a lecturer in languages, and that sort of thing. So I earned 
my not my living entirely because I was a part timer uh, with four. If you have four children in six years, there's not a lot you can do as a full time job actually. So um, you've already got one anyway. Um, so I have money, but not a lot. And I really, even if I had the money, I wouldn't stay in nice hotels or travel in a good sort of way because you don't meet people like that. Mm. And uh, so financially, I, I, I don't know what I do really, but I go, I mean, I've stayed in some fantastically awful, awful places. <laughs> and, uh, but it's an experience. And even when, when I've taken people to Central Asia, we've had to stay in some unbelievably dreadful places because just after the end of the Soviet Union, there wasn't anything. There was no infrastructure. And, and what do they talk about when they get back home? And what have they got photographs of? The dreadful bathroom with the cockroaches and the, the pipes that come down and don't actually feed into the tap. You know, sort of so. oh, you, your travel is directly tied to your business which is in handling, but how does that work in terms of finances? And do you ever have the impression that you can't go to a particular village because there's not the, there's, there's not the potential for a return from it? I think uh, traveling inside India, we fairly travel very cheaply, and it's possible uh, inside India. But yeah, I mean, because of financial, re and we are a company that we just built ourselves uh, absolutely in. I mean, independently, without any help from the bank or anyway. I mean, we just built on our income, and uh, so it was. It has been hard initially to par to par to participate and uh, reach out uh, in many times, uh, especially conferences where the participation fees has been very high. Or uh, yeah, so that. But then. Uh, in terms of uh, traveling inside India, we fairly travel very cheap. You can travel very cheaply, and it's possible to travel within a very very small small budget. And initially, we did, we did that when we, for, I mean, first started going to Fulia after we formed formed the company. We used to take the local trains. We used to take buses, local trains. We used to carry. I mean, that was time when we were teaching the the. I mean, we was how to print. I mean, we print warp threads and then we weave. So, I mean, we used to carry blocks. We used to carry a whole lot of paint, all all of that. But but travel on, I mean, public public transport. We we didn't have car to ourselves for almost five years. So yeah, that worked absolutely. So maybe you want to tell them about your early days of travel and the wonder of Portobello Road. Yeah, I mean, you, there's all kinds of ways that you can fund your travel, and one of the ways, and fund, I was starting the business, I also start, we started, I started from scratch, and uh, didn't get any, you know, it's all on bank loans and credit cards and so forth, and you just keep, it's kind of still there, but, <laughs> um, at the beginning I would do anything that I could, I would, because uh, the company just, there's no way it could afford the airfares. Um, I was traveling, my husband at the time, he worked for the airline, so I was getting passes, but uh, they, it became where the average to get to India took 85 hours because of the getting bumped off at Calgary and then Toronto and then mm -hmm. London and then not being, going to the airport about five times, five days in a row to get my flight back. So I started to fund it uh, by buying um, things in India or buying crafts and so forth in India and, and getting off the flight in, in 
London and selling them at Portobello Market to the dealers there and just getting my cash and then getting the next leg of the trip home. But uh, at the beginning, for the first 10 years, maybe first eight, nine years in India, it was all public bus. And uh, then we started to um, rent a car and drive, or hire a car and driver, but always was about the same as a bus. You obviously put 15 people into a car <laughs> and off you go. But uh, yeah, it, it, you've got to be creative to fund it. It doesn't come easy. I can, even now, I, you can't, it's very hard to fund the next trip. Linda, would you, the magazine was created as a way to fund your traveling? I had no idea I was going to need my passport when I started this magazine. <laughs> Truly, I had no, no idea that I would be traveling 80,000 miles a year. That was not, no, I, I had no idea. Um, and I also didn't know just what a bad travel addiction I really, uh, I really had. I think um, for me, the, you know, when, when you travel, you, you gotta, you're not swimming. <laughs> um, you know, once you get there, the choices you make, and certainly by most of the people on the, the panel, you know, we're not doing five star, you know, five star trips here. Um, but it's it's also a question of having a certain amount of savviness, you know, if you will. I mean, you can go almost any place in the world right now with a plane ticket that costs, you know, fifteen hundred dollars, whatever. And then a lot of times it the, it's those little puddle jumps, you know, within Mongolia. Some of those, you know, those uh, airfares can actually be quite quite frightful. Um, I I, I, mean, I will be very honest and say because I am on a deadline, you know, I sometimes have to get in and get out. So I don't I don't have the the luxury of a you know, I, I would like to sometimes be making more of that uh, trip and not be doing it in such a quick hit way. In terms of how sort of the whole whole thing is funded, um, I am on a shoestring staff. You know, the magazine is two, myself and two part-time people who even combined don't make up one full-time person a week. And so um, my money goes really to um, producing something that's on very high-quality paper and, and really trying to give the best product possible. And at the same time, I do have to spend quite a bit you know, to bounce around the way that I do. Um, many ways to answer that. Um, first of all, uh, when I traveled for my first many years in India, it was, you know, it started out third class train, which hasn't existed in India for 20 some years. Um, and always staying in homes um, because of, I mentioned in my lecture, the remarkable, I think I did, introductions that I was given to India. I work freelance, I always have, so I have many pots on the fire, or many hats. Um, I am a writer, and, and I do books, and I am a photographer, and I sell photographs, and I consult, and I lead tours, and I lecture, um, and I, there are other things. Oh, I, I'm a museum curator, and I design and curate and put together exhibitions. I am not, I'm, I'm not a good business person as regards to buying and selling anything. I just don't do that very well. The truth of the matter is that I am extremely fortunate in my relationship. I've been um, living with the same woman for 38 years and um, 
and been married for 37 of those, six of those years. And uh, she is extremely supportive of me and including financially. And she's remarkably generous and there are never any strings attached. Great. I'd like to thank everyone for coming out today. I'd especially like to thank our panel uh, for putting in such a long day and talking so much. You've done wonderfully. None of you look really all that tired. <laughs> <laughs> Charlotte Kwan, Linda Courtright, Sheila Payne, Stephen Heiler, Bapa Bismas. Thank you very much for coming out. You've been listening to part four of The Working Traveler, recorded live at the Maywa Textile Symposium on October 21st, 2009. I'm Tim McLaughlin. Thank you for listening.